You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week we're hearing from lead pastor Gare Jones. Today, this morning, we're going to look at one of the biggest questions of all. One of the biggest questions of all. And that is, is Jesus truly God? And so what? Is Jesus truly God and so what? Every year we run something called Alpha. The next one starts in September. And at Alpha, we create a safe space for people like me and others to to ask the tough questions, to actually explore what we really think about things. It's a safe, non-judgmental, free and fun place where you can re-question, question, deconstruct, reconstruct your faith around the big questions of life. And one of the big questions all the time is, I'm not too sure who I think Jesus is. I'm not too sure I buy into Jesus being God. Maybe not fully God. Maybe kind of in the language of our contemporary culture, maybe totally by he was fully human. And maybe he had kind of a spark of the divine within him. But kind of like we all do. We kind of all have that within us. But of course, that's not the Christian claim. The Christian claim is that God is in Jesus 100%. That in fact, he is God incarnate. That God has come to fully reveal himself. That Jesus is 100% God and 100% fully human. Now, for most of us, this goes, don't get that. Don't necessarily buy that. And what does that look like? And so what? All these questions come up with this incredible statement that Jesus is 100% God and 100% human. And in this story that we're going to read today, in this biography of Jesus, we see this story where Jesus models and shows to us not only his claims about himself, but also he shows us what it means for him to be fully God and fully human. We see it in practice. As Jesus interacts with two sisters and a dead friend. We see Jesus' identity on display. It's a well-known story. You may have heard of it. It's where Jesus hears that his best friend, one of his besties, Lazarus, is really ill. And Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, who are also really good friends of Jesus, they reach out to him and say, Jesus, they said, message, you got to come. Lazarus is really ill. Have you ever had that kind of message about a family member or friend? I mean, this is not looking good. You better get here quick. So Jesus starts out to go back to visit Lazarus, and he hears along the way that he's too late, that Lazarus actually has died. And he knows he's about to enter into great grief and mourning over the death of one of his great friends, Lazarus. And this story retells what happens when Jesus arrives on the scene. And it's traumatic. The environment is painful. I don't know about you, if you've ever heard the loss of a loved one and you've arrived into the family gathering. I remember when my father died unexpectedly. I was in Australia at the time, visiting with my wife, her family, and I was out playing golf with her dad, came back to the house and looked at my phone. In those days, it was a flip phone and flipped it up. 
and saw 15 missed calls from my sister. And you know 15 missed calls from your sister isn't going to be good. And I called her, and in tears she said that dad had been on a trip to San Diego and had sadly passed away alone in the hotel room. His heart had given out. And so I got that long journey from Sydney back to England, which is two 12-hour flights. It took me a day and a half to get the flights. And I knew all that time that they'd been gathering, and finally I was arriving on the scene and was greeted at the airport with family members grieving, and we grieved together. This is the story of what happens here. Jesus is arriving late to the, the morning, late to the grief, and we see what it means for Jesus to be fully God and fully human in this encounter. So let's look at John chapter 11, and we're going to begin in verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. In other words, come on, you're here now, do, do something. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, yeah, I know. He will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After this, she said this, after, sorry, after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher's here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus arrives on the scene, arrives into a community in mourning, and almost immediately we're challenged with one of Jesus's astonishing claims as to who he is. That in the context of Death In the context of a family grieving, Jesus has the confidence to go in and immediately announce, 
I am the resurrection and the life. And the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? It's astonishing that in the context of grief, in the context of the reality of pain and death in the world, Jesus walks in the midst of that grief and says one of his most astonishing claims, look guys, I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, what he's pointing to is I am the sovereign one. I am the true God of all creation. I am not just a friend, not just a wise teacher, not just an example of love. In this context, I want you all to know, I am fully God. It's one of those challenging statements. He uses a phrase, I am, which is loaded with significance from the Old Testament, where Moses asks God in the Old Testament, what's your name? Who are you? And God replies, I am which was a sign of God saying, I'm not just this, I'm not just this, I'm not just one piece of the puzzle. I am the whole thing. I am. And Jesus uses this to point to himself of, I am here. And in this moment, I want you to know, I am the resurrection and the life. The astonishing claim being, I don't just have that access to divine power. I'm not a prophet pointing to the divinity of power but I am the resurrection. I am the author of life. The challenge of Jesus is not that he points to God somewhere else, but he points to himself as God. Now, this is a great challenge because we wished he didn't do that. <laughs> because we have categories of religious teachers who are fully human, but not fully God. We have categories for wise teachers, spiritual gurus, philosophers, and examples of love and great, and great metaphors of divinity. But no one we trust, no one we revere, no one we look to would actually claim to be the one true God in human form. This is a huge challenge. What do we do with someone who claims these types of things? What do we do? Now, there's a, a common answer that many people have popularized over the years, which is really we only have one of three options. It's called the trilemma. One of three options. And C.S. Lewis, the great author and theologian, put it like this. He said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said can't just be reduced to a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, very British of the 1940s right now, but, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make up your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He didn't leave that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus went around claiming something that we would normally associate with someone who's kind of deluded or kind of evil. He's claiming authority to control people or he's just mistaken. And if you're mistaken about that, then that's, that's pretty toxic. Now, you may be here like I was years ago going, actually that trilemma makes sense, 
but only if some other things are in place. Now, I'm not too sure they're in place, right? You can't just say we've only got three options unless you examine your assumption. Because that trilemma that some people call the three L's, he's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he is Lord, that trilemma of the three L's assumes certain things. And what if I don't buy into these assumptions? Put it this way. I, when I was investigating faith, investigating who Jesus is, I remember looking at the trilemma and going, you know what? I'll see your three L's and I'll raise you my three M's, right? Because these three M's had to be established first before I was left with this trilemma. So what are the three M's? Well, I thought, well, maybe the first M, maybe Jesus was a myth. If Jesus was a myth, then we're not in 3L territory. We're not in the trilemma. Jesus was a myth. He never existed. And I actually grew up in a context where most people thought that Jesus was as real as Santa Claus. And it was kind of quaint if you still believed in Jesus, if you thought even he existed. I remember when I gave up my career to go and become a pastor, and lots of people were nice to me in saying, oh, it's so lovely you have faith. But when I gave up my job to become a full-time faith guy, they thought I was crazy. Literally, they, I remember a friend who was a client took me out for lunch. And I thought it was a thank you lunch. It turned out to be an intervention. <laughs> it's like, dude, we thought, this is great. It's nice to have a faith. But we, we never thought you actually believed it. Because that was in the realm of fantasy and myth and legend. And I got great sympathy with that. And, and of course, the great news is, and the good news is, but the challenging news is, is actually Christian and secular historians all agree Jesus existed. There's much evidence to point to the existence of Jesus. What you do with him is something different, but you can't say he's a myth. Secondly, okay, fine, he's not a myth, but maybe... He's been misquoted. That was my thought. Maybe he's been misquoted. You know, this trilemma of is he a liar, a lunatic, or a lord is based on that he actually said those things. What if someone made it up about him? He, maybe people later who wrote the Gospels embellished them, right? Or maybe the translations over the years and the copying, they've just been added to and added to like a great game of spiritual telephone. So what we have today is not what actually Jesus said. There's a challenge there, though. And it's not an easy off-ramp, that direction. Because the way of evidence seems to point toward the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as actually being what they wrote. That it hasn't changed over the centuries. That there hasn't been a great game of telephone. And in fact, we know that because, sorry to nerd out here right now, but there's a science called textual criticism, which is not a Christian thing. It's just, a, it's just how do we know that any piece of literature, any ancient piece of literature that we have today, how do we know it's what the author wrote? We all should do that. If you're studying Plato and Aristotle, you want to know this is what Plato and Aristotle wrote. And so we have a science called textual criticism, a literary science, which, to put it simply, is this. What they say is, look, let's look at the time gap between when the author wrote it and when we have the first manuscript. 
Let's look at that time gap. The longer the time gap, the less trustworthy our copies are. The shorter the time gap, the more confident we are that we have the original writings. Secondly, let's look at the number of copies. The less copies we have, well, it's just one copy for this original manuscript. The more copies we have, let's do it this way, the more copies we have, the more confident we are that it is what the original author wrote. Now, when you look at the New Testament writings, what is staggering is to say that this is, we have manuscripts dating back to within 20 years of the death of Jesus. So pretty close, more than any other historical document, we've got documents dating back almost to the time, almost the time of writing. And we've got thousands of copies, all that are identical in 99% of the way to those early manuscripts. In other words, most textual critics, this is not a Christian thing, most textual critics go, okay, what we have today is what they wrote. There wasn't a, a great telephone game. Are you, are you still with me? But then I go, I'm a cynic. Have you noticed I'm a cynic? Then I go, fine, right? What John wrote is what John wrote. We have what John wrote. Or we have what Mark said. We have what Luke wrote. But what if they made it up, right? Doesn't mean it actually happened. They could have made up stuff, right? They could have made it up. But here's a, I thought, but there's lots of problems with that. The first problem is that's a lot of people making stuff up. That agree, with, that agree with each other. You've got Matthew, you've got Mark, you've got Luke, you've got John, you've then got Peter, you've then got Paul the Apostle. All these people, you've got to say they were all making it up. But then you've also got all these other Christians at the time who seemed to be worshipping Jesus as God. So it wasn't just these guys, but there was a movement that was started pretty early on of people in a Jewish context we're doing something staggering and worshipping Jesus as God very early on, before these Gospels were written. We know that because we have one of the first church hymns, first songs written by the early church that was sung in church like we are singing today around AD 48, AD 49. And in that hymn, Jesus was declared as God, as someone to worship. So it's like, well, why would they all make it up? Why would they all do something radically different from what they were raised to do, which was always to separate God from creation. And then why would they do that, which was writing their own death warrant to do so? Christians were under persecution in the Roman Empire as of the Emperor Claudius in AD 48. That escalated with Nero in the early 50s. And when I say escalated, it went from being expelled from cities to being set on fire to light up the streets of cities. And that was because to claim Jesus was God was to be in direct opposition to Caesar being God. And so it's, it was a mutiny. Jews were um, kind of allowed that provision in surrender of their land. Emperors said, you Jews can worship a different God. But you Christians, I'm not going to give any, you know, no, it's a new thing. And so they were tortured. So if you say that all these, all these worshippers and all of these authors made all this stuff up, 
As a lawyer by trade, I've got to go, well, what's the motive for doing so? Because there's no economic, social, communal gain in doing so. In fact, they were martyred because of it. All the evidence seems to suggest that they wrote what they actually experienced. Which makes sense, because if they wrote something vastly different, there's also the fact there were lots of people who were still alive, family of Jesus, all the people who witnessed Jesus, that if there was a document, lots of documents circulating that were false, it would have been really easy and common for people to go, dude, that didn't happen. That's just wrong. You're just making stuff up, bro. Just in the same way today. If someone wrote, if you sadly passed away today and someone wrote a biography in 15 years' time, which was the, first, which was the time gap between the death of Jesus and the first biography of Mark, if that stuff was just making stuff up and it was on the Amazon, and here it is, the authorized biography, and it was just made up stuff, a lot of your friends and family would go, take this thing out of print. But it didn't. People actually went to death, their own death, going, yeah, because this happened. So these three M's I had, but I got to say, they didn't really help me move away from the trilemma of, well, I think Jesus actually said this. So now I'm back with my trilemma of, well, maybe he's a liar. But I can't see through the life of Jesus and all that he did, this guy being a liar. Well, maybe he's a lunatic. Maybe he's just like really crazily deluded. Again, I look at the life of Jesus and go, there's nothing deluded about this guy whatsoever. There's nothing mad. In fact, he's the most loving, gracious, coherent person out there. So, in the words of Sherlock Holmes, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. And this is the challenge of the claims of Jesus. C.S. Lewis concludes, he says, we're faced then with a frightening alternative. The man we are talking about was and is just who he said he was. Or else he was insane or something worse. And to me, it's obvious that he was neither insane nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. This is the claim, the staggering claim of Jesus. Even today in a city like LA, that he's saying, I'm not 50-50. I'm not a spark of the divine. I'm not what your yoga teachers talk about, that we all have some divinity within us. Do you know that one true God over all things, creator, sovereign, that he created all of us? I am that one. I am that one. So much so that in a staunchly monotheistic culture, he allowed people to worship him. Staggering. But this passage doesn't go into great detail, okay, tell us more about that. But what it does do, it shows us the beauty of it. The beauty of God in Jesus being fully divine, fully human. And sometimes when you look at a difficult doctrine, a difficult truth, and there's lots of them, right, you can 
It's appropriate to look at evidence. It's appropriate to look at philosophy. It's appropriate to look at the text. But it's also helpful just to look at it in practice. And here we see Jesus entering into a situation of grief and displaying the beauty of Jesus being fully God and fully human. The beauty of it. And we see, firstly, him approach Martha with the fullness of his divinity. See, Martha runs out to Jesus, and she's got kind of anger in her eyes, and she's like, oh, if you were here, Lazarus would not have died. Now, her foundation's gone. She's angry, she's upset. And Jesus responds to her differently to Mary, and he responds to her fully out of his divinity. He says to her, square in the eyes, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. I have got this. Do you know who you're talking to? Do you believe this? Look at me. And she goes, I do, I see. See, Mary needed, in her moment of tragedy, in her moment of sorrow, in her moment of grief, in her moment of uncertainty, she needed the full weight of Jesus' divinity to say, Martha, I've got this. He can come into any situation. And when you follow Jesus, he can come into your situation, into your circumstances, and look you square in the eyes when you're panicking, when you're fearing, when you've lost all hope. He can look you in the eyes and say, don't you know who you have with you? I am the author of life. I am the sovereign God. I've got all things in the palm of my hand. Don't you know that I've got this? Because he's fully God. When he says he's with you, do you know the gravity of what that means for you? That means he's above the circumstances. He's above the trials. He's above what other people have done to you. He's above even what you've done to others and yourself. He says, look, I will work all things for the good because when I'm with you, the sovereign I am is with you. And when you're panicking and when you're fearful, when you're not knowing what's about to happen in the future, when you look at the circumstances, he looks you straight in the eyes and Jesus in his full divinity can give you hope because he goes, I am here. So many times in my life, I've started to panic and to worry. I feel like the, the ground is giving way beneath me. I lie awake at night playing over scenarios in my head with fear and hopelessness. And it's in those moments when I remember, I feel like I want to be like Martha and run out to Jesus and say, Jesus, where are you? And it's in those moments we are comforted with the words of Jesus as he said to Mary, I am the resurrection of the life. I am above every situation. I'm not just some wise teacher. I'm not just some religious guru. I'm not just an example of love. That can't help you through the storms of life. I'm susceptible to them just as much as you are, if that is who I am. But I'm not that. I am the great Yahweh with you every step of the way. The beauty of Jesus being fully God. But also there's the beauty of Jesus being fully human. See, Martha 
doesn't run out to Jesus. She's weeping quietly and grieving at home. Martha comes and says, Mary, Jesus wants you. So she runs out and she asks the same question of Jesus, but you'll notice in this passage, she's in a different place. It says she's weeping as she's saying this. She's not accusing Jesus. She's just in deep anguish at the suffering and the grief. She's just lost her brother. Jesus doesn't look at her and goes, come on, cheer up, Mary. I am the resurrection and the life. In fact, it's because he's fully human that he's allowed, he can step into a different place with Mary and simply weep with her. Simply feel the pain with her. He's lost a friend. He's lost a brother. And these aren't crocodile tears. See, if he wasn't 100% human, these would be crocodile tears. God doesn't know what it means to suffer. God doesn't know what it means to go through pain. And if it was 50-50, it was 50% human, 50% God, then he'd kind of go, ooh, I'm crying, but I'm not. You know, it's kind of, I feel a bit of pain, but I'm God. You know, it's just kind of, in the mystery, and it is a mystery of being fully God, fully, fully man, he can fully step into Mary's pain and your pain. Have you ever been through a tragedy in your life? And then you meet someone else who's going through a similar tragedy. And you just wrap them in your arms and say, I know. I know. Here's the beauty of Jesus. If he wasn't fully human, he couldn't whisper in your ear, I know. I know. He could say, I've got this. He could say, oh, that, I can kind of imagine this must be hard for you. But he can fully step in, share our burdens, and the God can draw alongside and say, I know. And he can share our grief and weep with us. This is why the prophets call him the wonderful counselor. Because whenever he goes into every situation, God in Jesus, fully human, fully divine, knows exactly what is needed in these moments. Sometimes I'm like Martha and I just need someone to look at me square in the eyes and say, don't you remember who God is? I go, yeah, I needed to hear that. Sometimes if someone says that to me, I want to punch them. I just wanted you to empathize with me. Have you ever been there? I just wanted you to give me a hug and say that you know what I'm going through. Now, most of us skew one way or the other. I know what I do. I know when I go into situations, I definitely skew one way. You probably can all guess which kind of way that is. I'll look at people in the eyes and I'm, I'm quick to say, don't you know? Don't you know Jesus is with you? Don't you know? Which is why none of you come to me for pastoral care. <laughs> Ash, on the other hand, is a guy who is in touch with Jesus. And he, he goes, I know, and he weeps with you, which is why you all go to him for pastoral care. 
But see, Jesus knows that both are needed. And he knows exactly which one you need. He's the wonderful counselor. It's the beauty of Jesus. It's the beauty of him being fully God and fully human. But that's not the end of this amazing story of Jesus being fully God and fully human. We didn't read it, but later on in the verse, he goes to Lazarus' tomb, and you know the story. He commands Lazarus to get out of the tomb, and he raises him from the dead. And the great news is, of course, is that because he's God, he can enter into every circumstance you're in and bring about a resurrection. It may not be fully the full resurrection that we long for. It may be that you're still suffering with various issues. It may be that you know, you're still not, your prayers aren't answered in certain areas. But the, the promise is Jesus will enter in and he'll start to bring about his kingdom. He'll start to work all things for the good. And in this story, we see him going to the tomb of Lazarus and going, I'm going to bring him out. I'm going to rise. I'm going to raise him from the dead. But note this. In the text, he says he bellows with anger. He go, he's angry as he goes to the tomb. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because what's he angry at? He's not angry at God. He is God. He doesn't cause evil and pain in the world. He's not angry at Mary and Martha. He's not angry at Lazarus. What's he angry at? And as scholars have looked at this and we've wrestled with this, it seems clear that there's only one thing he can be angry at, which is consistent with God throughout the Bible, and that he's angry at humanity enduring the pain of the darkness in the world. He's angry that his friend Lazarus has been broken by death. He's angry at injustice and racism and greed in the world. He looks at the world and God is angry at seeing his beloved creation ripping each other apart. He's angry. And we want a God angry at that, right? We want a God who's not complacent and goes, well, it's your choice. It's like when you see your children, if you have children, your friends going through trials and traumas and they're struggling. You're angry, you don't want it to happen. And we see this raw anger of Jesus. We see a window into what it is to be God. That our true God, when he looks at the world, he's angry at the darkness that's ripping humanity apart. And you say, well, why doesn't he do something about it then? Well, becoming fully human is what he did to do something about it. He took off his robes, it says in Philippians, and he took on humanity didn't give up his divinity, but he embraced the fullness of humanity to step into our pain, to step into our darkness in order to do something about it. You see, we have a trilemma when we're faced with who Jesus is. God has a dilemma about what to do about pain in the world. Because on the one hand, he can come in and just get rid of it. But I know, at least for me, if God just says, I'll just get rid of this pain, he's got to get rid of me. Now, before you think I'm the world's worst problem, I think in our most authentic moments, we all go, the line of good and evil goes through every single heart. We've all got the potential. And we're all the problem with this world. What's wrong is not out there, it's in here. So the dilemma of God is, how do I get rid of the darkness in the world without getting rid of the people I love? 
and starting all over again. And so for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. You see, Jesus became fully human so that he could get us out of the mess of this world. And he did this on this glorious mystery of the cross that he knew that his life was all pointing towards. And somehow on the cross, because he was fully human, he could take the deserved justice of humanity. He could truly say, I will take what you deserve. I will take away the pain of this world. I will take away the consequences of every evil deed in this world. And I will carry the cross. That God became human, not just because he loved Lazarus, but because he loved you and me. That in his love, he resolved the great dilemma of how to rid this world of pain not by getting rid of this world, but by actually taking the pain of this world onto himself. This is again the glory of Jesus. Fully divine and fully human. That he lived the life that we couldn't live so he could die the death that we all deserve. This is the beauty, this is the glory of Jesus, fully God and fully man. Let's stand together. Thanks for joining us for another week. We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.